When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in Irish Studies, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. My name is Aidan Beattie. I'm one of the co-hosts of this channel. Today we're talking to Dr. Hugh Bennett, a reader in in international relations at Cardiff University, where his research focuses on the experiences of the British Army since 1945. And somewhat related to that, we're talking about his new book with Cambridge University Press, Uncivil War, The British Army and the Troubles, 1966 to 1975. Dr. Bennett, thanks for joining us. Hi there, Aidan. Great to be with you today. So maybe we could start just with the question that I think seems to be almost prompted by your title. Was the Troubles a civil war? And if it was, why don't we just call it that? Yeah, this was something that troubled uh, officials and military officers and politicians a great deal uh, in the early days of the conflict and, and also for years afterwards. There was certainly a reluctance, a really deep reluctance uh, within the British government to ever call this a war, you know, and still, you know, of course, the the euphemisms abound, the troubles or the conflict or uh, the difficulties or whatever people may call it, um, because it was something that the British government didn't want attention uh, focused upon, especially at places like the United Nations or in the emerging um, what's now the European Union or or elsewhere diplomatically. So they were quite keen to uh, to minimise. The difficulties, which is a, a, a long-running kind of theme in, in the wars of decolonization as well. And um, they also didn't want to give credibility to the IRA by accepting that there was a war going on uh, uh, and admitting that the IRA might have some kind of standing as an army as opposed to, to terrorists. And so what, what do you see it as? Like, Do you see it as a civil war? Do you, are you happy just calling it the Troubles and leaving it at that? Yeah, I'm very non-committal on it. So my my view is that um, within a couple of years uh, of of the conflict starting or, or re-emerging rather in the, in the late sixties, early seventies, that the British government had become very obsessed about preventing a civil war, and that if you like this um, obsession with trying to contain the conflict and limit it um, in its scope is more important than deciding whether it actually was a civil war or not. So there's lots of debates, especially amongst political scientists, about what is a civil war? You know, what's the definition of it? What's the threshold of violence? Does it have to be a thousand violent deaths per year? Can it be fewer deaths than that? Does there have to be some kind of international diplomatic recognition of the warring parties? So there's all these kind of um, definitional debates about what it is. And and my view is... um, that's up to the reader to decide for themselves what they think about it. And I, I take the bit of a kind of cop-out position of saying, 
it's it's more the debate about it at the time that's really interesting. Sure, sure, fair enough. Um, you mentioned there um, that, that there are certain aspects of Northern Ireland and of what happens in Northern Ireland that bear comparison to other wars of decolonization. And and in your book, you you talk quite directly about certain kinds of baggage that that soldiers bring with them as they arrive in Northern Ireland. And I assume some of that is baggage related to coming from other wars of decolonization. So maybe you could talk us through that. What what, are, what is the baggage that they're bringing with them? Mm. I mean, what, I'm, what I started off trying to do with the book was to push back at this idea that there was a lot of baggage and trying to give us a, a slightly more uh, balanced interpretation of how much baggage there, there was and, and what was the nature of the baggage. Because there had been a real tendency building up over a couple of decades for academic studies, especially in military history, in strategic studies, to try to explain everything with reference to decolonization and to say, look, what happened in, in Northern Ireland in this period, it's just the same kind of problems, the same types of violence and, and military tactics that had been used in Malaya and Kenya and Cyprus and, and, and various other places. And um, what I was trying to show uh, is that there, there are large parts of the violence in Northern Ireland and, and significant kind of aspects of the conflict that just don't make sense with this colonial kind of rubric around it. So there's unmistakable aspects of British conduct in Northern Ireland that are colonial. And probably the, the most obvious standout ones are interrogation in depth, or, you know, we could just call it torture. Um, the use of internment without trial. So detaining people without any kind of judicial process, but just on really on suspicion. Um, and, searches the the wide scale use of military searches having a kind of very disruptive effect upon civilian communities so there are unmistakable um pieces of baggage that you can see the, these things were done in the colonies and then they were done in northern ireland as well so you can't really refute that but there's also um significant colonial practices that were really not applied in Northern Ireland. So there were no free fire zones, for example, right? So there were in, in Kenya, for example, there were prohibited areas where the military could just open fire on anyone who was there. Now, there were some politicians who were calling for that in Northern mm -hmm. Ireland, but it was never formally approved as, as a policy. Another big one, of course, is the use of in, in Malaya and Kenya of um, what at the time was called villagization, but what now we would probably call kind of forced population transfer, um, very close um, control of people's living conditions, forcing out them out of their homes, out of their ancestral lands into very closely monitored and quite nastily repressive um, living conditions in, in many circumstances. So that was not done in Northern Ireland. And that was a major feature of, of many of the colonial uh, decolonizations. So I'm trying to kind of in the book, uh, accept that there were these aspects of continuity from the colonies, but also look at some of the uh, some of the significant differences too. The other, if I if I can, like the last mm -hmm. big problem I had with this this idea of like colonial continuity or baggage, really, is is politically and morally what it does is it makes the senior military officers and it makes the senior politicians, the cabinet ministers, and so on, it makes them into kind of unthinking robots who just have this toolkit of okay, so there's a problem like this, 
we just apply these tools as we did in the past. So in a way, it kind of removes responsibility from them and, and it denies the fact that they uh, debated and discussed and it, it, in some cases agonised about what to do in Northern Ireland. So they did use repression in Northern Ireland, but it wasn't unthinking repression. They decided to use impression very deliberately. Mm -hmm. uh, and maybe if I could switch away from, let's say, looking at Northern Ireland in this much bigger, or, or maybe trying to shoehorn it into this much bigger colonial context, if we could look at it um, in the longer context of Anglo-Irish relations, what kind of perceptions did soldiers bring with them about Irish people? Um, and, and do they just see Northern Irish Protestants as just being another kind of Irish people, or do they, do they have an understanding that they bring with them of the differences between Northern Irish Catholics and Northern Irish Protestants. Mm. I think there's a real split here between um, different parts of the army, different levels of the army, and also with the civilian leadership, the, the ministers and the, the civil servants back in London. So at that kind of top leadership level, there is an awareness of Anglo-Irish history, and there is uh, a sort of almost fatalistic view that whatever Britain does in Ireland, it's going to lead to disaster, like that this is a very unhappy history. And this is something that very much concerns the Labour government in the 1960s. Um, and if we're trying to understand why would the, the troops sent in in August 1969, why were they not sent in earlier? when there were some people calling for them to be sent in earlier to support the police and, and stop things really deteriorating at, at that point. Uh, one of the major reasons is because the, the British cabinet had this very fatalistic view that whatever Britain does in Ireland is kind of guaranteed to go wrong because of this complicated and, and, and tangled history. So there's that going on at a senior level. Then you've got parts of the army that are um, quite uh, familiar with Ireland. So let's not forget, of course, that there are regiments of the British army that recruit in Ireland, right? And, and even after partition, they're still recruiting um, from the South as well. They're still recruit, re recruiting people from the Republic. Um, so there are those parts of the army that have a pretty um, sophisticated understanding of the kind of emerging politics of what's going on in Northern Ireland in the 60s with the political upheaval. But then when you're talking about the majority of the British army and, and normal soldiers, regular soldiers, you know, privates and sergeants and kind of quite junior people, um, most of them have absolutely no idea what to expect. Um, so you that you have these accounts of soldiers going over to, to Northern Ireland in, in August 69 and, and in the months that follow, who are kind of astounded that this, this place looks just like Birmingham or it looks just like London. You know, the street signs are the same and the road layout is all familiar, the same kinds of shops and so on. So they, they kind of, they can't quite make sense of it because it's alien and very, very familiar all at the same time. Um, and they're... There's, yeah, I think there's real difficulty amongst ordinary soldiers in, in figuring out the politics of what's going on. That, that changes over time. And of course, by 1972, 1973 onwards, you've got um, professional soldiers going back to Northern Ireland every year, every two years, perhaps even more frequently than that. You know, people who, who serve in the army for a 20 odd year career they will go to Northern Ireland maybe six or seven or eight times. So 
in that longer term setting, soldiers do develop a much kind of deeper understanding of, of place. And, and there is this thing that, that in hindsight can look quite odd, that there's almost like a, a honeymoon period for the army when they do come in. Um, they're somewhat welcomed even by the Catholic community. And yet then it all starts to go wrong. So what, what exactly went wrong? This is the this is the big question, and this is where there's there's still going to be debate and uh, you know disagreement on this issue for a long a long time. And I think you know the the simple answers are either well it was all brought crashing down because the army couldn't help itself; it just reverted to the colonial mindset and did its colonial thing and started being repressive again. Um, and the alternative explanation is well everything was fine. And then the provisional IRA was created in December 1969, January 1970, and the conflict really started and became much more violent because of the provisional IRA. So those are the kind of seductive, nice, um, easy answers. And the messy answer um, that I think is more convincing is that it's, it's something to do with both of those things. But thrown into the mix, of course, something that's often uh, missed out because there's often such an emphasis on the IRA as, as the kind of the pivotal actor in the conflict is the role of the uh, the loyalist paramilitaries or the, the kind of Protestant extremist groups as well. So the real kind of, I think the turning point is around Easter 1970, where the, the provisional IRA is becoming more militant and more active. It's starting to um, organise rioting against the British army and against the police in a much more kind of worrying way than uh, kind of uh, ad hoc, you know, random riots that are just kind of quite chaotic. This is much more focused and, and managed. Um, but at that time, the assessments from the from the army and from the police are saying that the greatest danger actually comes from the, the loyalist paramilitaries and not from the IRA, right? So they've got this, they've got a decision to make. Are they going to try and deal with the loyalist paramilitaries? Are they, or are they gonna try and deal with the IRA or are they gonna try and deal with both of them at the same time? Up until that point, the, the policy had been to deal with all of them at the same time. But from around about um, March, April, 1970, the army instead decides to, if you like, launch a pretty, uh, concerted preemptive attack on the provisional IRA. So the view is that the loyalists are more dangerous, but in order to stop the loyalists from killing lots of people, you should remove the thing that is provoking the loyalists from wanting to kill lots of people, which is the IRA. So it's a it's a calculated risk, and there's a, there is a clear awareness at the time that it's a calculated risk, and it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. So, so you're obviously paying very, very careful and close attention to these shifts in policy, in mindset, in thinking. What then changes when Edward Heath is elected prime minister? Does that cause a change in how the army is acting? I argue that the shift had happened in those few months before Heath came to power. So Heath was elected in, in June 1970. But So I'm arguing that the change really happened around the March-April time. And the way that I'm able to, to make this argument is... As you say, the archives that I look at, if you like, are from the top level and from the bottom level. So what's generally missing in the archive record is the stuff in the middle, 
which is headquarters Northern Ireland. So the generals in charge in Northern Ireland and the brigades. So there's an army brigade in charge of Belfast. There's another in charge of, uh, of the west of Northern Ireland. A third one later comes in. Their records are mostly missing, but you can work out what's going on from looking at the papers of the top kind of British cabinet level and then at the low level uh, British Army Regiment kind of level and see the connection between the two and the communication going kind of up and down that that chain of command. And so it's it's quite clear to me that the the um, the change in the op in the army's operational style certainly happens before Heath comes to power now. Why have we not noticed this before? So on the one hand, we haven't noticed this before because nobody else has gone through the archives like that to, to check, right? So that's the first reason. But the second reason is because the Labour government who are overseeing this change earlier on are not broadcasting it from the, you know, they're, they're keeping pretty quiet about it because it's not consistent with their political position, which is that there should be reconciliation and a negotiated settlement. So they're, they're not really open and honest about it. And by contrast, when the when the Conservative government come in, you know, this is the party of law and order and, and, and so on. They're much happier using this kind of tougher, more disciplinarian rhetoric in in public and in parliaments and else and in the media and so on so it, it's understandable that people have kind of looked at that rhetorical shift and thought ah therefore the practice must be perfectly in alignment with the rhetoric but of course re rhetoric and reality don't always match up perfectly with each other and, and just before we move on can i ask a clarifying question when you say the records are missing what does that mean <laughs> So they're missing from the National Archives. So they're missing from public scrutiny. Um, they're not missing completely. So there's, uh, you know, to use the horrible kind of Rumsfeld phrase, there's um, there's definitely uh, known unknowns, right? So when I started this book project, I did a survey of, of everything that was kept in the National Archives on, on the catalogue. And I had two documents. And the one document was the open file all the documents that were available and the other document was the closed files so things that are listed as being there but you're just not allowed to look at them for another 50 years or maybe even 100 years um, and occasionally through using the freedom of information act uh, uh, or, or just the natural process within government departments things shifted from one document to the other and they and they became open so there's a vast amount that's still classified uh, like these brigade records, that the headquarters Northern, Northern Ireland records. And of course, perhaps one of the, the biggest uh, collections of all are the collections of the intelligence services. So MI5, the UK Domestic Intelligence Agency, absolutely none of their records on Northern Ireland are open at all. They were, they were active in Northern Ireland in this period. So this is a major organisation that was kind of party to the conflict, and we've got almost no idea what they were doing. Um, apart from you know some journalistic works and, and, and things like that so there's uh there's things that we know exists uh but are not available yet and then there's probably the, the unknown unknowns that we'll uh we could add to that as well sure so it's all very fascinating um so maybe we could go back to this this question of how and why things go wrong for the army or, or risks they take that then kind of blow up in their face um there is something of a perception that maybe by the mid-70s, or certainly by the end of the 70s, the IRA is trapped in a kind of a, a cul-de-sac where it, it has it is strong enough to, to be 
be a, a military presence or a paramilitary presence, but not strong enough to actually force the British to back down. Um, and so they end up in a kind of a long war that they know they can't win. Mm-hmm. Does the army end up in a similar kind of trap that, that they know they can't win and yet they're stuck? Yes, they're both in the same position fighting against each other and neither of them can get out of it. Now, there are um, there are some in the army who are perfectly willing to admit that. And there are some civilians in the Ministry of Defence, civil servants, who are also willing to admit that and advise the government that the only way out of this is some major political negotiation and reform that is very likely going to require cooperation with the Irish government. It cannot be done as a unilateral kind of British initiative. It has to be internationalised. And there are other parts of the army who are some senior generals who are absolutely adamant that they will beat the IRA if only they're given more time, if only they're given more money, more resources, more soldiers, more equipment, and so on. So I think that that probably also kind of mirrors the debate that ends up going on within the provisional IRA. You know, you get the kind of the militants who who think that they they can coerce the other side into into uh giving up everything that they that they want. Um, and there are others who who are much more skeptical about that. So you get the kind of yeah the 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 diplomats versus the militants in in both the British state and and in the IRA by actually i mean i would say even earlier maybe 1973 74 you already start to see these kind of cracks emerging on both sides um and then just as a kind of a, a final question i mean when i look at say your your broader work as a historian um you're obviously looking at this much more as a kind of a British imperial scholar rather than an Irish studies scholar, right? You've written on Yemen, you've written on Kenya. When you look at Northern Ireland somewhat from the outside in, what do you think still needs to be done? Like, Where do you think new research needs to be carried out to further understand the troubles? Well, that's oh, that's a great question. That's a tricky one. I mean, I've, the first thing I want to say about that is that as an outsider, if you like, coming in, it's been it's been a really wonderful experience and one where I've been helped by so many uh, Irish historians and and scholars of the conflict working in in different disciplines as well, you know, beyond history too. Um, And, you know, you can't always take that for granted that that'll happen. So I've been helped a great deal by by people being really generous. Um, I think that, you know, in terms of the the dynamics of the conflict itself, the the biggest um, uh, misunderstood and, and the most poorly understood of the combatants is certainly the, the the loyalist groups, right? So even if we're talking about the biggest of them, like the the Ulster Defence Association, which has you know ten or twenty thousand members at peak, it's it's big. This is a significant uh, militant organisation that can really have a a very serious effect upon the the dynamic of the conflict. So like there is no really authoritative single study of the Ulster Defence Association, right? Um, and, you know, there are there are much smaller groups like the Down Orange Volunteers, more kind of regionally based groups, which are also very significant and, and, and little is known about them. So I think that's um, that's one of the biggest gaps um, at the moment. And then, you know, you can you can certainly say that there are whole other kind of more thematic approaches that could be taken to the conflict, like gender history. There's a lot more that could be done on um, the experience of, of of women in the conflict, of children in the conflict as well. Um, the the history of uh, of trauma and of um, 
the kind of mental health consequences of the conflict there's there's massive amounts more to be written on the on the northern ireland troubles well thanks so much for this great conversation um as i think all this shows like this is a very careful and and sophisticated book and makes a very valuable contribution to a still somewhat misunderstood part of the world thanks so much dr bennett thanks so much Aidan. cheers <laughs>